0: The reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. You'll find that on page 808 in your pew Bibles. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, And coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Memorial Church. My name is Joel. I am on staff here at Calvary, and it's my great privilege to be here this morning to preach. To proclaim God's word, I actually have the privilege of i am um, going to be preaching a few times with this series. Gerald and I are going to be kind of going back and forth as we walk through the temptations of Jesus during this Lenten season. So we're actually continuing our series today. So on Ash Wednesday, if you're able to be with us, Pastor Gerald got up here and he preached on part of what you actually just heard, which is chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to be picking up today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, as we walk through Jesus' temptations throughout these weeks. But Lent is traditionally a time in the church calendar where, as Greg said, we focus on our mortality, on our sinfulness, on the ways that we have fallen short, but on how Christ has come to redeem us. And so we actually kind of go into the darkness because we're looking forward to the light. Christy announced that hope is almost here. In many ways, in Lent, we do this because hope has come, and we look forward to that day. And there's a number of things that we're doing to invite you into this season. So hopefully, when you arrived, you received a Lenten devotional. If you did not, uh, they should be uh, out there at the welcome table. But we have put together a Lenten devotional that have these readings. But if you're behind, it's fine. You can catch up pretty easily. But there are short readings to do every day throughout the season of Lent that actually take you through the story of the Scriptures leading all the way up until the resurrection. We're encouraging you to participate with that together as a church. Also in the book, we're encouraging you to participate in a Lenten fast, where we actually give something up, not just to kind of be religious. We actually give something up so we can be reminded of what's been given to us, and that what's been given to us is ultimately what we need. So we encourage you into a Lenten fast, and we are encouraging you as well as you follow along this season of Lent to be praying for and looking forward to inviting someone in your life to the Good Friday or the Easter services. But another thing that we are doing during this time is switching up the order of the service. So you may be noticing I'm up here a little bit earlier. Uh, If you like to come to the 11 o'clock service rather than the 1045 at Calvary, uh, this feels very early probably. You're used to a couple more songs going on, but all of a sudden I am up here. But we're doing this to kind of mark off the season as something different. To notice that something else is going on here, that we can look to Christ during this time. But because of that, because this is different, that we're kind of putting what's usually later or earlier, I actually want to begin this sermon and really begin our service where we usually end our services by telling you something that Gerald ends essentially every single service with. I'm sure you know what I'm going to say God loves you. Our God. The God of the universe, the God who made all things, who is in control of all things, he loves you. That is usually how we end every one of our services, by reminding us of this reality so that we can go out into the streets and actually have that confidence. And our sermon series on sexuality that we actually just concluded was essentially all about that seeking to show us that God does indeed love us and that we can see that in how he's designed our bodies and our sexuality. God loves you. But Okay, I bring that up now because in this series, we're going to be wrestling with a lot, what does that actually mean? What does that truly mean? So it's one thing for us to end all our services with announcing that to you. It's one thing for me to begin our service with telling you that God loves you what does that actually mean for our lives? Because I'm sure that for many of you, you don't feel that right now. You actually don't feel that most of the time throughout the week. So if you go into the hallway out here, uh, there is a painting of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, actually, throughout Lent, we're be having different martyrs, these, these paintings of them out there. and You can kind of reflect on what they went through throughout their lives as we participate with Christ in his suffering but Bonhoeffer had this amazing thing that he talked about in his book, Life Together. And he talks about it in, in Life Together that each one of us has been saved by something external to ourselves, okay? God has done something for us in Jesus Christ and through Christ, he declares his love to us. He declares our justification through Jesus. But Bonhoeffer says that that word of actual salvation is weaker in my heart than it is in my brother or sister's mouth, so we actually need one another. We need someone to speak the word of love to one another because we have a difficult time believing it in ourselves. And that's what we're wrestle with right now. What does it mean for God to love us when we go through the pains and trials of life? Can we still actually believe that it's true when we wrestle in the wilderness? It can seem confusing to us, and so I am want to focus on that today as we look at Jesus' first temptation. So let me pray first, and then let's dive into the text. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I want to thank you, Father, right now, God, that you sent your son to actually take on the pain of the world, to bear it in himself for us. And I pray, Lord, that in your mercy and in your grace right now, you would help me by the power of your spirit, Father, to communicate the reality of this so that you would assure all of us of your love for us. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, especially in this room right now, Lord, who are struggling to believe that you love them. Who have a hard time holding on to that or don't believe it whatsoever. Would you please encourage them today by your word? I pray this would not in any way be about me, about how talented the musicians are or anything like that, Father. It would be about you and your love and would you assure us of what you have done for us in Christ. You do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and again, this is on page 809 in your Pew Bibles, is where Matthew 4, 1 begins. But it says this at the beginning of our text Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so let's stop there for a second, because that verse could appear to us to be fairly strange or at least counterintuitive. We may not not think that because we're so used to this story, but I think if we actually notice what is being said here, this looks a bit odd. The reason for that is because of what we are meant to know about Jesus already in the book of Matthew and of how this verse concludes. You see, what we know about Jesus so far is that he is the son of God, which does not just mean that he's the divine figure. It means that, but it means more that he is God's chosen instrument for saving his people Israel and through Israel, saving the whole world. Okay, so if you look back at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, the very first verse in Matthew's gospel, which is actually the first verse of the New Testament, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, that verse alone is such a remarkable claim because what it means is that this person that we are about to read about, this man that was born to Mary around 2,000 years ago, is the fulfillment of God's promise since the dawn of time to restore this world to what it was meant to be. That verse is saying that this book you are reading, the Gospel of Matthew, concerns Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, who is a long-promised king to rule over the world with justice and mercy, with love and righteousness. Yes, this Jesus is the longed-for son of David, through whom the world was to come to know Israel's loving and saving God. And he's the son of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth were to be offered the blessing of God. That is who Jesus is. And as we move forward, his remarkable nature only seems to grow. Leading up to our text. So in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we find out that Jesus is born to a virgin and that his birth is the return of the presence of God himself to be among his people. That this man is not just a man, but he's literally God with us. He is Emmanuel. In chapter two, we see the nations of the world are streaming to him, okay? So the wise men kind of represent the nations are coming to Jesus, bringing gifts. We see God protect him from being killed. And in chapter three, We see John the Baptist preparing the world to meet Jesus, which is explained as preparing the way of Yahweh, of the Lord, of God himself. Because who Jesus is, is the king. He's the savior. He's the hope of the world. He's God's very son, God's very chosen one. He is, as the very end of chapter three explains, the verse right before our text, he's God's beloved son, with whom God is well-pleased. He's the one that God loves. He okay, so that's who Jesus is. God's son, which means he's our savior and that he's deeply loved by God. But I want to ask you to consider what you believe that should mean for him and his life. In particular, being God's son. If Jesus is God's beloved son, his child that he loves what do we assume his life should look like? You see, this is an especially important question for us to ask because it concerns not just our views of Jesus, but also our own lives. So as I've said, we end basically every service here with Pastor Gerald saying, God loves you. That is the message our pastor wants us to remember. Every time we walk out those doors, God loves you. And of course he does. That is true. Guys, God loves does indeed love you. The gospel message itself is the announcement that God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save you. So that you, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have not done, that love, that eternal love that you actually deeply long for, that you've been trying to find through other means such as relationships, your work, your identity, sex, whatever it is, the true love that we all need can be yours through Jesus. Jesus through knowing him, his life, death, and resurrection, God does indeed love you. Okay, what does that mean for how you will experience life? What does it mean for what life will look like? Well, my guess is that if we are honest about our answers, our description would not include something like what we find in verse 1 of our text. Because look again what this verse says. Okay, so then Jesus, after being declared that he's loved by God, that he's God's beloved, yes, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What this verse is saying is that the purpose of the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness was so that Jesus could be tempted by the devil. God intentionally led his son into the wilderness, a place of difficulty, a place of pain, a place of suffering, a place where there's no food, where he has to fast for 40 days and 40 nights so that he could be confronted by Satan himself. Does that not seem a strange thing for God to do to his beloved? to put him in this difficult and precarious situation, to lead him into a situation for the very purpose of the devil being able to tempt him. I would think that if we are honest, the answer is yes, we do find that to be a pretty strange thing. In fact, I would say that even if you don't think that's a strange thing, you're probably only saying that because it's not you at this moment Who's experiencing it? What I mean is that even if we know that God does this to his beloved, even if we can articulate the right theological answer and explain, yes, God does this to those whom he loves, we often know that in the abstract. But when it actually happens to us, when we are faced with an experience like this, when we are in the wilderness, we start questioning God Where are you? What are you doing? Do you actually love me? So there's this distinction that theologians sometimes like to make between what is called your formal theology and your functional theology. Your formal theology is that which you think is the right answer or how you would respond to a question concerning God. Whereas your functional theology is how you live. It's how you feel about God. So your formal theology is what you say. Your functional theology is what is revealed through how you spend your time, how you pray to God, or how you react to situations that you are in. And I think that no matter how you tend to formally think about God intentionally leading his beloved into the wilderness to be tempted, how we functionally act when those things happen tends to show that we're confused by this. At least I know for myself that that's what I am. I'm often confused by this, that while I can articulate that God does this, and that it doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. When I am faced by these realities myself, I end up questioning God. I don't feel like God is loving me or caring for me or is even with me. This has happened to me a number of times throughout my life, but perhaps the most consistent thing throughout my life is during fights with anxiety. So throughout my life, I've had a number of times where the Lord has led me into the darkness of anxiety, not for days or even weeks, but at times months. And one particular time lasted for essentially two years. It wasn't every single day or every waking moment of that two years, but it was so consistent for that time that I kind of look at it as like two years of a battle with anxiety. And while I was going through that, I was in Bible college, which means I was reading tons of books that gave me the right answer in terms of how to think about this. I had professors, I had fellow students, I had pastors I could go to who could talk me through theologically what is happening here and say that God loves me even in this. But that was so far from how I actually felt. And no matter how much I prayed, it didn't seem to ease the existential crisis that was happening with me. And during this time, I not only felt alone, I felt like God didn't care that he'd turn his back on me and that this wasn't right. It wasn't right for God to do this if he claims to care for me, if he claims to love me. So that again, while I had the right answer, how I was living or feeling, exposed that my functional theology was such that God's loving guidance it should not include a, mo- a road marked with this much pain and suffering. And I know that this doesn't even compare to what many of you have been through. During these times, I was tempted and often succumbed to questioning God and his love for me. And the scary thing is, is when this happens and you go through it for long enough, oftentimes your functional theology changes your formal. You start thinking, I guess I was wrong. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. And perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you are there right now. You hear a saying that God loves you, but you look at your life, at your current situation, at the wilderness you are in, and you don't feel like it. You don't feel at all like God loves you because if he did, why are you so alone? Why has your life taken the shape that it has? Why don't you feel God's love. And maybe you're in this wilderness because you have been seeking to follow God's will. You've been praying and asking God to lead you and guide you. And you find yourself in a situation where you feel alone, you feel lost, you feel confused, you feel in pain. You are feeling that if you were loved by God, if you are indeed God's child, God's son, God's daughter, if Gerald is right, things should be different. Should I not have to go through this? And maybe you're seeing it happen to someone else and you're asking the same question for them. If God loved them, why won't this change? That's where I was at. That is where I've been so many times throughout my life. And I'm sure that for all of you here, you've been there as well. We are all tempted at times to ask, if God loved me, if I truly was his child, wouldn't this be different? Wouldn't I have a way out. Well, what that means is that we've actually all been tempted in the same way that we see Jesus being tempted here. Okay, because look at verses two through three. All right, look what it says here. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves Okay, let's think about that for a second. What is the devil actually tempting Jesus with here? What is the temptation? The temptation is to stop the pain, stop the suffering, stop the difficulty because you are the son of God. To put it differently, the temptation is to believe the lie that God clearly could not have led him into this situation because he's God's son. Being loved by God is antithetical to suffering. The devil is basically saying, listen, Jesus, you're hungry. You have to be. You've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, but apparently you're the son of God. So you shouldn't be going through this. Just turn those stones into bread. End it. End the pain. You see, I think we can tend to read these verses as if, as if the devil is tempting Jesus to use his power. He's saying, if you're the son of God and that's powerful, prove it. Turn that stone into bread. But I think that misses the point. In fact, if that's what this is about, then the rest of the gospel of Matthew is pretty confusing where Jesus does use his power all the time, such as multiplying loaves, walking on water, healing people. If showing he is powerful is tempting to him because it's wrong, and it seems that Jesus succumbs many times over. That just doesn't seem to make sense. And it doesn't make sense to the details of this text. Guys, God led him into the wilderness where he would fast for 40 days and 40 nights and so be hungry, which is obviously an understatement. I mean, the way this reads is kind of just bizarre. And he was hungry. Do you think he was hungry? He was excruciatingly hungry. God led him into a situation in which he is suffering. And the devil is saying, well, if you're God's son, God's beloved, end it. And the suffering, you should, because this is his point, this isn't right. This is not OK. Because the devil is working with a definition of what it means to be God's child, in which it wouldn't be right to suffer like this. But you see, the point that I'm trying to make here is that that's what we do as well. We work with that same definition, with that same understanding. It is deep in our hearts. And when that happens, when we have this understanding of what it means to be loved by God deep inside of us, there's often two results. One is that when God is calling us to follow him, to live for him, but we look ahead and we see that the road that he's calling us down is marked with difficulty, marked with pain, marked with uncertainty, we think that can't be God that's actually calling us down that road. Many of us have perhaps felt this this past week as Pastor Gerald preached through our series on sexuality. As Gerald said in our Ash Wednesday service, living out the Christian vision of sexuality in our day and age is not just hard in itself. It could lead to being shamed by our classmates, coworkers, neighbors, and family. How could a loving and good God call on us to follow him or call on us to tell others to follow him when the path is so difficult? That can't be God's will, can it? Well, if we're working with the same understanding of what it means to be loved by God, that the devil is in our text... We assume it can't be God's will because that's not loving. And so we don't follow him, nor are we willing to tell others of God's love for them. The other thing that happens when we work with this understanding of what it means to be loved by God is that when we face pain, when we walk through the wilderness, into the darkness, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we can't see God. We can't find him. We wonder where he is. And we often try to do all that we can to turn stones into bread, to end the pain, because that's what God would want, isn't it? It has to be because he loves us, because we are his child. Okay, what if? What if this is because we're working with an understanding of what it means to be loved by God, to be God's child that's wrong? What if we actually have a twisted, even satanic view deep in our hearts of what it means to be loved by God. And I know, I know that sounds super intense to say that it's satanic, but listen, what is happening to Jesus here and the temptation he is facing? This has been Satan's lie from the beginning. Think about the times that Satan, that the devil explicitly shows up in scripture. Okay. What does he do? So in the garden of Eden, When Satan shows up, what does he do? He tempts and ultimately convinces Adam and Eve to disobey God by convincing them that God has held back on them. That he hasn't given them what they need. That if God really loved them, he wouldn't withhold this tree from them. He doesn't want you to have this. And so they take and eat. In the book of Job, Satan shows up and says, if you take everything away from Job, he'll curse you. He has to. The only reason God lo- Job loves you, God, is because he isn't suffering. Make him suffer and he'll hate you. 12 chapters from now, in the book of Matthew itself, Peter will confess to Jesus that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus will then tell Peter and the disciples right after this that he must go to the cross and die, but Peter rebukes Jesus for this. Yet she tells Jesus, may it never be. Don't go to the cross. You can't do that. But what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Why? I mean, I feel like almost every time I've read that, I'm like, wow, that escalated really quickly. (laughs) But you see, that's the point. What is Peter telling Jesus to do? He's telling Jesus, don't suffer. Don't go to the cross. And why? Because he knows who he is. He knows he's the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God's son. So why would you ever suffer? Because this is the lie that the enemy has sought to plant in our hearts from the dawn of creation. This is what he wants you to believe. He wants you to think that God doesn't love you because of what you are going through. He wants you to question God's love by looking at your circumstances. He wants you to believe that if God loved you, then God wouldn't hold back on you. He wouldn't have taken that away from you. He wouldn't lead you into the wilderness. He wants it in our hearts. But it is a lie from hell itself. God does love you. He does. I know some of you in this room are going through excruciating pain. And you are tempted to believe that God doesn't care, that he isn't with you, that he isn't leading you, that he doesn't love you. But please hear me, he does. And the proof of that is actually what we see happening in this text. You see, often, someone said this to me after the service, reflecting on what we talked about here, that in Lent, we are encouraged to give something up so that we can participate in Christ's suffering. And that's true, we should be doing that and lent. That's a good thing to do. But we do it because what we see actually happening when Jesus went into the wilderness is him participating in our suffering. You don't actually have to do anything to participate in Christ's suffering because he's already participated in yours. And that's what we see happening here. The proof of God's love for you is that God's beloved was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil because he did this for us. You see, one of the important things you need to notice with this text is that it is intentionally written in such a way that our minds are meant to recall earlier events in the history of the world recorded for us in the Bible. Meaning we are actually meant to see in this experience of Jesus' life that Jesus is doing what's called recapitulating the history of Israel and really of our world. He's reliving the difficulties that others have gone through. So just the fact that the first temptation that we're looking at here is the devil tempting Jesus with food should remind us of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? But there's other things that actually really point to Israel's history. So we read this, but right before our text, Jesus is baptized by John, right? So he goes through the waters and then the other side is declared to be God's son. And then he's led into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and is tempted. Well, that should make us think of the story of Israel, Because they too went through the waters when Moses led them out of slavery. They went through the Red Sea, were declared to be God's people when standing at Mount Sinai. Moses went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and then led them into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 years. You see, the details of what is happening here are meant to show us that Jesus is actually repeating history. He's re-experiencing the pain, struggles, and temptations of those who have gone before. And if you really want confirmation of this, it's seen through what Jesus says. Okay, so each time the devil tempts Jesus, he responds by quoting from the Bible. But it's not just anywhere. He's not just grabbing random, random things. He quotes every time from the book of Deuteronomy and one section. And in that section of Deuteronomy that Jesus uses to reject the devil's temptation, each one of these comes from the section of Deuteronomy that is retelling Israel's story of being in the wilderness for 40 years where they were tested to see if they would trust God. See, what's happening here is that Jesus is truly reliving, re-experiencing the history of Israel so that if you remember from Wednesday, Gerald explained to us that in Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus choosing to participate in our shame, in the shame of sinful Israel and in the shame of the sin of the world. Well, in our text, we see that Jesus is choosing to participate in our pain, in the pain of sinful Israel and in the pain of the world. But in so doing, Jesus is actually succeeding where Israel failed. Because in our text, when Jesus rejects the devil's temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy and saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus is quoting something that Deuteronomy says Israel failed to recognize when they were in the wilderness. In other words, when they were hungry and suffering in the wilderness, they didn't trust God. They didn't rely on him. They didn't know where he was. But here Jesus does. Okay, why is that so important to recognize and how does that help us? What well, helps us because Israel was God's people that he had chosen and set apart for the sake of saving the whole world. Right, that, that was their purpose. When God chose Abraham and his family, he set them apart and said, I will bless you so that through you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. That was their purpose. They were to be a people who knew God who knew that God loved them so that they would trust him and live for him through all the highs and lows and in so doing would draw the world to, God, to know God as well. But they failed. Like all of us in this room, they didn't trust God. And so like all of us, they didn't follow God's ways. But because God loves Israel and loves us, because God loves you, he sent his son, his beloved son, Jesus into the world to be what Israel was always meant to be. He sent him here to participate and take on our shame. He sent him here to take on our pain and our suffering. He sent him here so that in doing so, Jesus himself could bear our shame, bear our suffering, bear our pain, bear our sin on himself, go to death, but then come back so that he could offer us the hope of one day, this all being gone. He did all of this. Jesus was willing to be led by God into the wilderness. In fact, so deep into the wilderness that it took him all the way to the cross to be nailed to a tree on Good Friday so that he could offer us the hope of Easter. And guys, that is the proof that God loves you. That is the word of that we need to live on. And it's why actually we can act like Jesus when we are tempted. When we hear the words, if you're God's child, then why are you suffering? We can respond like Jesus and say, I don't live on bread. I don't live on comfort. I don't live on avoiding the pain of this world. I live on the word of God. And that word declares that Jesus has died for me. He's truly risen and he did it for me and he did it for you because he loves us. You see, what is remarkable is that this is not the only place in Jesus' life when he faced these temptations. When he actually heard these words while while experiencing pain. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is at a place called Golgotha. He's there because God led him there. Even though a chapter earlier, Jesus is on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays to his father, if it be possible, father, please let this cup pass from me, but let your will be done, not mine. Yes, Jesus prayed that, but God still led until Golgotha, to the place of the skull. And it was there that Jesus was killed. He was crucified, he was nailed to a cross and hung up high for all to see. And many did see him. And they spoke to him. They said things to Jesus as he was hanging up there on the cross. And I want you to hear what they say. So this is Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 39. Matthew says this, and those who passed by, they derided him. wagging your heads and saying this to our Lord. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They said he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. If only Jesus were to come down from the cross, if only he were to stop the suffering then the people would believe that he is their savior. Then they would believe that God not only loves him, but through him, God is loving them. That again is often how we feel toward God, isn't it? God, if only I could escape this hardship, this difficulty, will I believe that you love me. But that's the lie. That's the lie of Satan, that we are tempted to believe, and that the people who saw Jesus repeated to him as he hung on the cross. But I I want you to hear this, guys. Jesus hung there and he continued to hang there. Not in spite of being our savior, not in spite of being our king, not in spite of God's love for us, but because of it. He hung there because he is the savior. He hung there because God loves you. Because through staying on the cross, through dying for us and our sins, he was giving us himself and the hope of resurrection. And the thing is that because that's true, because the ultimate display of God's love for us comes not through him helping us avoid pain, not through helping us get away from the difficulties of life, but through giving us himself and Jesus in his death and resurrection. Because that is true, there are times when God will intentionally lead you into the wilderness to be tempted because he loves you. So there's this remarkable quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian woman, and she was paralyzed when she was 17 years old, and she's now almost in her 80s. But she says this, if God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as could be in this world... And then it told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my unusual sources of enjoyment. I should have thought this a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters, to let the light of heaven in. You see, we often wonder why God blows out the good lights in our room. Why he leads us into the wilderness where there isn't any bread. And while a full explanation is not actually offered to us in the Bible, and I don't want to pretend as if I'm truly giving you right now a why to all of your suffering right now. I don't know why. But I do know that at least part of the answer, it seems, is because he loves you. And he wants us to stop thinking that what we need is the comforts of life. That we need that bread. That we need these lamps. Because what we need, guys, what you need is Jesus. And he went into the wilderness for you. He went to the cross and was pierced for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is the word that's been given to you. And so, can you know that God loves you? Despite the pain that you are in right now, yes, you can. How? Not by seeing him help you avoid suffering, giving you bread in the wilderness. I don't know that God loves me because I don't suffer from anxiety as much as I used to anymore. And if I look there, then it's gonna be really, it's gonna be a fickle thing to stand on because I'm gonna go back through those times at different times. But I can know, you can know for all eternity that God loves you because he gave you His son. He died for you and he rose again. So as we begin our Lent journey, may we begin it knowing what God has done for us for all time, through his son, Jesus Christ, because God loves you, and you know it because of Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the love that you have, as you say, Lord, in Ephesians, lavished upon us through giving us Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would take hold of him and know him, and I want to pray again, Father, my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, who need to, be, to know your love, who need to be reminded of this reality, Father, in your mercy, in your grace, would you assure them of that through Christ? Would they know this right now? Would they feel your love given to them through Jesus Christ? May your spirit speak to them. And may we all, Lord, take hold of this and so be able to actually walk out these doors in this service, praising you and thanking you for the love you've given to us. And I pray, Lord, for the rest of our service as we rise to sing and rise to sing praises to you, sing that we, that we need you, praising that you rebuild and restore all that's broken. Or may it be done with hearts that are full of joy not because you've already accomplished all those things and taken all our pain away, because in Christ, we know that day is coming. We know Easter is coming. We thank you for that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.